airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Party to hop off for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with you, Macro in the morning. For AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today, and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment, 17 degrees. Honey, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to chat to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest sat behind the microphone at some of the most influential radio stations in the country, but more importantly, he guided our listening habits in the 70s and 80s with innovative creative radio formats. Think 2SM, think Triple M, think Triple J, think Barry Chapman. Barry Chapman, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Greetings from Scotland. Good morning, or evening as it is for you. Yes, yeah, coming in nice and strong. Now, Barry, you're a person whose working life was basically in New South Wales and Sydney, but you're in fact originally from Victoria. So was young Barry just a boy from the Burbs in Melbourne? Absolutely. Uh, I grew up in uh, West Footscray, and radio was my escape. That's how it all started. I mean, I like I had a, quite a quite a poor childhood, lost my parents when I was very young, and uh, I used to hide myself away. I got a crystal set in the early 60s, and then a transistor radio, and Ken Sparks and Stan Rofe saved my life. So your dial in those early days was definitely on the greater 3UZ. Absolutely. Uh, much of uh, what I did, what inspired me for those times, the lessons that I learned, uh, were reflected across much of what I did in my media life. Now, a product of Clark Sinclair's radio school there in St Kilda, starting point for so many young hopefuls who went on to be household names. So can you remember anyone else that came through with you at the time? Oh, God, now you're, now you're really pushing my, uh, you're pushing my memory. Greg Evans probably was the most notable. Uh, he obviously had a big rise to fame over the decades. Quite a few, but they're kind of way back in the mists of time now. <laughs> now, your first appointment was at 2QN in Daniloquin, a 21-year-old in country New South Wales, 300 kilometres from Melbourne. So what do you remember about the good folk of Denny? Uh, it, it was a fantastic experience. It, actually, Clark Sinclair, uh, it held me back. I was far too arrogant, far too full of myself. And he, he kept me back in the school for quite a while, longer than probably I should have been. And he finally put the tapes out 
And uh, in the space of a week, I got three jobs. The first was 2Q Edit in Eloquin. It was uh, 3CS Colac and 3BA Ballarat. Probably given my choice, I would have gone to the Victorian stations, but QN came first and I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Danilica was just a great experience. You know, you were the male boy. You did five hours, five hours, six hour shifts on air. Uh, and uh, I, I had an immense amount of fun and it was a great learning experience. It really, it really, really was. So, you know, I, I reflect upon those days really fondly. Now you moved through three stations in double quick time, going from Denny to Hobart to Horsham and Swan Hill, then finishing in 1973 at 2NM Muzzlebrook. That's a lot of stations in a short amount of time. Hobart was uh, about a year and they fired me because they thought I was leaving and in those days nobody wanted to pay anybody anything. Uh, then I went to uh, Horsham. I was there three months doing breakfast. They changed the format and I was out. I went to Swan Hill. I lasted about 10 days. I hated the place. And at that point in time, I'd been having a conversation with Mike Webb uh, and Lee Simon at 2NX in Newcastle looking for a way into the 2SM group. The job of 2NM came up and I jumped at it as the uh, the manager of 3SH, Swan Hill, said to me at the time, after my disgraceful contact, you'll never work in radio again. I said, bad luck about that. I've already got another job. <laughs> and I was off to Musselbrook. Uh, and so began uh, quite an odyssey, you know, uh, seven, eight years uh, inside the 2SM group, uh, which was, you know, really formative for me. So even at this early stage, Barry, were you taking more than just a keen interest in how the stations were being run, or were you just a young jock living the dream? Uh, probably probably thrilled to uh, my time at 2NX, I was just the jock living the dream. Uh, I started to really think about the programming side of it at 2NX. Then uh, when uh, Rod and Trevor hired me to 2SM, it kind of crystallised in my mind that whilst that was a successful way of doing radio, it was not necessarily the way that I loved, nor, nor did I want to do it. So, you know, it's the usual thought, you can't change it being a jock that you can change it being a program director. So when uh, Trevor said, do you want to go to 2NX in Newcastle as PD? Uh, again, I jumped, and that was uh, that was uh, a significant time for me. Now, 2NX was your first exposure to the very successful Rod Muir Moore music format that had virtually taken over the whole nation. Now, the 2NX alumni list reads like a who's who of Australian radio. So why do you think NX was such a great training ground? Uh, basically, I think it had all the uh, attributes of, of 2SM without the pressure. You know, you're sitting at a Cap City market and you've got to rate. Life is a bit harder. In Newcastle, there's a survey a year, maybe, maybe two. Uh, so you didn't feel that kind of pressure. You're in a three-station market, so revenue was not as difficult. All, all those kind of things that come into play in radio. Newcastle had a lot more freedom about it. I did nights at 2NX, and I just had the time of my life on the air. The format was tight, but it was good. And, uh, you know, there was a responsive audience uh, that I had a lot of fun with. So the natural progression from Newcastle was to follow the format to one of the capital city stations. In your case, it was to 2SM Juggernaut in Sydney in 1975. With, as we know, Rod Muir calling the shots, 
a man who enjoyed creating successful radio stations, making money, and entertaining. Do you ever experience the Rod Muir hospitality? Oh, yes, many times. Uh, in fact, uh, when I first when I first came down uh, to work at 2SM, uh, Rod took me out to dinner at the uh, at the San Francisco Grill at the Hilton, where the champagne was in full flow, where the the swan came out with a dessert up its bum. <laughs> he, I mean, Rod, you know, every, every survey was boxes and boxes of uh, Moet Chandon or Don Perignon. Uh, it, it was a it was a hard and fast life, but it was also a tough one. Rod was a very hard taskmaster for those who worked for him. And you know, I saw I saw people get fired live on air when they're in the studio with Rod walk in and fire them. It was uh, so it had its good side, but it it had it also had its bad side. For me, you know, actually Tim Webster and I came down SM had had a slump in the ratings. Rod fired a few people and brought Timmy and I in. Tim did drive and I did nights or late nights, uh, and the. The incentive is you get the ratings up, you'll get a colour television, uh, which uh, Tim and I uh, subsequently achieved uh, and had, had great success. So that, that was kind of the way it was. It was, it was. it was very much cowboy radio in some respects. But, uh, yeah, we had a lot of so did you feel you reached the top of the mountain with this appointment? Uh, no, no. At that point in time, you know, my, my eyes were already set further afield. Uh, you know, obviously, I love being on the air at SM. Uh, it, was, it was such a great feeling. It, it's really hard to describe just the energy that, you know, I, I'm being a Melbourne boy, to me, Sydney always had much more energy. And when you got on the air, you could feel it almost, you know. It, it was a, there was a hum that you just couldn't describe. And uh, sitting, on the, sitting on the air on a Saturday morning, for example, 10 to 2, when you knew half of Sydney was on the road going to the beach or whatever else, it's just a magic feeling to be there and be part of it. So, who were some of the jocks that you shared the roster with at the time? I did, I did ten to one at nights. Uh, preceding me was the uh, the infamous uh, one of the greats, Laurie Bennett, the wonderful Lobo, who'd come up from Three XY. Uh, he was the absolute classic jock. Uh, John O'Donnell, they were all there. George Moore, and of course Macca, Ian McRae. Been a lot of fun. So that first taste of life away from the microphone and towards management came when you returned to 2NX as the program director. Were you tapped on the shoulder for that one or was that the direction that you were hoping to go in and you pushed yourself into it? No, no, actually I had not, uh, I had not made any overtures about moving into programming. Obviously I was quite, at that point in time, I was vocal about programming inside 2SM of what should and shouldn't happen or what we can and can't do. And, uh, but uh, Trevor Smith uh, said to me one day, do you, well, do you want to do it? Because uh, we need a PD at, at 2NX right now. And I said, sure, happy to do it. So it was my first chance uh, to do what I thought should be done. Uh, and NX had never rated number one. So uh, that was my goal, getting NX to number one, which I did. Uh, and then... Uh, and again, it was, a, it was a huge learning experience at the time. One of the things that I, that it was quite an epiphany, an epiphany for me at one stage there. Every Friday night, Gavin Rutherford, the station manager, general manager, would have drinks in the boardroom and all the jocks would come along. And as you well know, with broadcasters, 
They'll always tell you what's wrong. So poor old Garvin used to take a hammering from all of us every Friday night about what was wrong with the station. And one night it came to me that I was doing it all wrong. Actually, my job in life was at to actually to help him, not to hinder him. And uh, from that point on, you know, we formed a really strong bond. And uh, it really, it really drove my career. That, that single decision drove my career back to 2SM. As you said, the station needed fixing at the time and you were able to turn it around fairly quickly. Did your successes there set the foundations for the years that followed, do you think? It, it certainly was the, the trial of what I thought. You know, I, you know, I lived through that 2SM era where the play was, playlist was 30 records. You know, when you, when you were on the air doing a shift at night and you played the same song twice in three hours, that was, that was really testing as a job. Uh, just to maintain your enthusiasm for it. So that was my first forays into changing the musical approach, the music formats, which is what I did at 2NX, which was part of the reason. The other was just my absolute desire to do the, the you know, the crazy, wonderful promotional ideas and all those sort of things. So we, start, that's, we started a lot of that then. But certainly I took it forward to 2SM. 1977, back to 2SM, this time as Program Director, in what was an unbelievably successful and dynamic period for the station. Now, you left as a jock and returned as a PD, a well-received appointment, or one where you really had to earn your stripes? Oh, 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 oh. I tell you what, pressure at that point in time, I'd never felt anything like it. It, it was tough because I was replacing Rod Muir. And you can well imagine who's this, you know, young punk, from Newcastle, who's going to come out of here and he's going to take this radio station somewhere where it's already been successful. Uh, so the pressure was enormous for me to succeed. And, of course, what I wanted to do was way beyond what any of them thought. You know, the, one, of the, one of the first things I did in the, in the early months was take a playlist from 34 records to 120 uh, and add album tracks and do a whole array of things musically that the station had ever done because I, I've always firmly believed uh, that there was a lot more to music than just playing the same hits over and over and again. Uh, and, you know, it was to prove true uh, that, you know, from 77 through 1980, 2SM's ratings just went through the roof. But it was it was not just the music, but that was part of the, part of the character of the station that, that change has kind of opened it up, as it were. You know, it made it more interesting and more involving. So how big a risk was it taking a format that had been working and working very well, sprinkling your magic dust over the top of it, hoping that you'd maintain at least the same sort of momentum? Well, the, the beauty was that, you know, I knew it to be true going back to 3UZ. I knew what I thought was true way back then. I had, a, I had a simple premise in my head that I wanted to create the same excitement that I felt when I was a kid. You know, that anticipation of a new song, something new happening, a great promotion, etc. That's what I wanted to do. All I was doing, in, in many respects, was putting my touch to that, uh, where 2SM was slight, it was much more rigid in its formatting, much more rigid in its approach, and didn't it didn't play on that excitement factor that I thought was the difference and that turned out to be so so yeah risk i've ne never been afraid of a risk my tombstone should read he didn't die wondering 
And let's hope we don't have to use it for quite a while. Now, Barry, you mentioned some on-air talent before. Names such as McRae, Moore, Gibson, O'Byrne, Sparks, Williams, Grace, Drayson, the list goes on. So what sort of direction, if any, did those guys need? And who was the jock to most often stray from the station blueprint? Oh, I don't think anybody really strayed from it. You know, it took, it took them a while, or some of them a while, to come around to the fact that their lives as, as jocks on air was going to be better. You know, there was going to be more interesting for them. And once they realised that and they saw the results coming, then it, then it was like a snowball. Uh, but, it, you know, the first six months were very challenging. Uh, but everybody was fairly disciplined because you lived inside a very disciplined format. So just opening it up a little was not a, not a huge challenge in many respects. It was getting a more creative approach on the air. I didn't like the time and temperature, uh, you know, back and down, forward and out's approach to life. I, I wanted them to be more human, more people, more engaging and have more fun. You know, the old days was kind of time and temperature, back and out, one liner into a song over the intro and that was what you did. And uh, I, I, I wanted to see it as a, a lot more than that. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what I encouraged with everybody. And it, it, and I think the interesting thing is the, the difference between the way I work and the way many people work is the people that, are, that work for me have a great deal of say in what they do. You know, it's not, it's not a rigid format. You do the format that I say is the format and that's the only way it'll get done. It's much more uh, consultative kind of approach to life and much more engaging. Everybody sharing the same views. So although it was a music format, how important was it to maintain a strong emphasis on news and current affairs? Oh, very strong. I mean, it, the, 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 the path had been set, and I think probably, I think, I mean, the more music format was the steel out of the US, but the news and current affairs approach that, uh, that Rod put into 2SM was something else. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't take... It didn't take rocket science to figure out that this was the best news operation in the world. And all I had to do was help enhance it. And, you know, with, with Steve Lehman and Brian White, that tremendous journalist, Lloyd Jones, and, uh, and the team that were there, I brought John Tingle in to do afternoons, afternoon news and commentary as well. We, we just went about strengthening it. And then, of course, you added you know, Gibson and Moore, their kind of half editorial, half entertainment approach to life in mornings. And you had just a tremendous news operation. I think, you know, when you look back, it's one of the few news operations that I've ever seen. And, you know, I've worked in the ABC and had some responsible for, for journalism inside that organisation for a while. It's the best news operation I think there's ever been in broadcasting. 2SM and Move Flavoured Milk presents the last Rocktober concerts of the decade. The date, November 4. The place, Steps, Sydney Opera House. The opening acts, Metal as Anything, The Radiators and My Sex. The rest is going to be history. Next Monday, we'll raise the curtain on the biggest event in the history of Australian rock and roll. The 1979 Rocktober concert 
presented by Move and 2SM. Now, 2SM in that period ran the best events and promotions, with one highlight, of course, being the concert of the decade in 1979. The lineup consisted of the who's who of the Australian rock music industry at the time and a number of high-profile reunions. What can you remember about the preparations of the day and how did it all come together? Well, it was, uh, you know... It was that was that was fun. That was a dream of mine. It was just I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think we could pull it off. But uh, you know, as we as we talked, I Peter Ricks and Mike Judd to help uh, with the with the artist side of it. There's a huge gateway process to put everybody on the stage. Three hundred musicians on the stage or two stages. Technically, it had never been done before the dual stage thing. Uh, it was it was just it was just a blur in many respects. The day was just a blur. I, I mean, I was happy just to go home and go into a dark room at the end of it. Yeah. But it was it was a magic day. I mean, the, the number of people there at the Horseshoe yeah, was phenomenal. The artist was incredible to see Stevie right back on the stage. Yeah, it was tremendous to see so many of the acts together. And just everybody enjoying themselves, and 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 the people loved it. I mean, it's still talked about. I think that's you know one of the things that gives me great pride and all of that. That 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 seventy seven eighty period for two SM is is the revered. It's something that everybody got involved in. And a third of the city was listening. Now the connection and conflicts with the Catholic Church and two SM are well documented, but now folklore has it that in order to be part of the concert the Ted Mulry gang had to sign a document guaranteeing that their song Diner would not be part of a live performance on the day. Is that true or false? Um, I can't remember about Diner. The one that was, was most contentious Hush would get rocked. Les used to play the guitar riff and the crowd used to shout, get fucked. Right, and you can imagine a hundred thousand people on the steps of the opera house shouting "Get fucked!" And the church was no way. I mean, the church weren't involved, but that was, you know, from the from the upper management uh, perspective, that was the fear. And so, I mean, Hush were good friends of mine. I know them from Musclebrook days, and I, I said to them, "You can't do it." It was no, they never signed anything. There was no there was no waiver, uh, etc. But I said, "Listen, you just can't do it." All right, so. Everybody agreed, but the funny part of the day was uh, they they did Bodie Maroney and I forget the other song they did. Les just played the riff, just down, 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 <laughs> and off went the crowd, and I just rolled about laughing. I thought it was a huge day. What are the what are the funny events? Mm. Yeah, there's nothing better than some good Aussie audience participation. Now, looking back at the list of those who performed on the day, it highlights both the incredible talent we had in this country and, unfortunately, how many are no longer with us. Stevie Wright, Ted Mulvey, Mark Hunter, Max Merritt, John English, Doug Parkinson, and the list goes on. Let's not forget also some of the great jocks who were involved on the day who have also passed away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the it's the sign of our age, you know. <laughs> It's the it's the memorial column now. It's it's remarkable. That that was a I think that period, that late seventies period into the early eighties was probably the golden age of music, Australian music in many respects. There were so many artists, there's so many great bands, there's so many venues. I mean, it was you know, one of the great sadnesses of the music industry in Australia 
was the decline of the live venue. Uh, my my attitude was put as much Australian music on the air as possible, put Australian young Australian bands in front of large audiences. I mean, the concert of the decade uh, from memory medalists, anything opened uh, that concert. Uh, you know, we put the sports uh, with John English uh, on the Thin Lizzy bill. Every one of the bills always had young Australian artists and getting all the, the Victoria Park concerts, first time split ends ever played to a big crowd. Uh, it was about, it was what we were about is giving them equal footage on the air and, and high rotation, you know, that, so that there was a life to be had, there was a living to be earned. And, you know, we, we saw the results of it, you know, and then, and now, sadly, as you see, as you say, the Mark Hunters of the world are no longer with us. And when you look back at that musical time and go, well, it's fantastic. Fast forward to 1981, and FM radio was being introduced to the airwaves, and you were enticed by Rod Muir to be the first voice on 2 Triple M. But you weren't actually the first choice for that shift, were you, Barry? No, no, no. That was, that was quite funny. Um, you know, I'd had a big fallout with 2SN, and, uh, you know, I was contemplating what next to do with my life, and I wanted into consultancy uh, for the music industry, and I got a call from from Rod saying, why don't you come over? And it turned out that uh, Gordon O'Byrne didn't like the sound of his voice in his headphones. And it was, you know, working AM through to FM was a, bit, was a big change in those days. And Googie just said no. And so I said, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm up for it. I'll go back on the air. So, yeah, I did afternoons for uh, about three quarters of a year, I think. Uh, on Triple M before uh, going on breakfast. Now, Barry, tell me how close you were to ditching Triple M in Sydney at one stage and heading down to Eon FM in Melbourne. <laughs> you have done your homework. It's a great story. I was very close. Lee Simon and I were very good friends. We'd worked together in Hobart. Uh, we remained close friends, Newcastle, Sydney, et cetera, et cetera. And Lee was the PD at, three, at, 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 Triple, at Eon FM, Triple M Melbourne. And uh, he rang me up and it was Easter. And I said, oh, I'm coming down. He said, let's talk. You want to do breakfast in Melbourne? And I said, yeah, okay. So I went down there, spent Easter in Melbourne, uh, talked to Lee. We basically agreed that I was going to do breakfast, return to my hometown, which was pretty exciting. And on uh, Easter Sunday morning, I got a phone call from... Rod saying, uh, you got to come back. And I said, why? He said, everybody's walked out. <laughs> he said, everybody's gone. So Cherie had gone to Today FM and Trevor Sinclair, uh, Peter Sinclair had gone with him, with her and uh, Frank Avis, I think, uh, on news. And Rod said, I need help. Come back. And, uh, and we talked about it. And uh, I, I said to him, well, you know, if I'm going to program 2SM, it's going to be my way. At Triple M, it's going to be my way. It's not going to be yours. Uh, because the first nine, 12 months were, were great fun, but it was folly. It really was folly. It was, it was not the right format. It was not the right approach. And I said to him, you know, 
you can't listen to the shareholders because everybody's got their own musical taste. You can't listen to the shareholders, nor the management, half of whom were shareholders. And I said, so they're my terms. Uh, it's my way or I don't come back. And so Rod said, yes, okay, come back. So we had a we, we had a meeting on the mountains that were up in, uh, up in the Blue Mountains and I laid down the law to uh, the management group that this is how it's going to be and I'm not interested in your views on music. I'm not interested in your views on how radio should be made. You've had your go. Your shareholders are restless. You're losing money. It's time to fix this. And so I made quite a few enemies that day. But uh, it, we, you know, we turned triple M, triple M around at that point in time, and I, I said to I said to Rob, I can't do breakfast and PD. Uh, can only do one. Let's find someone. We had two candidates. Rod wanted Jonathan Coleman, and I wanted Doug Mulray. And uh, I just said to him, No, Jonathan, not. It's not the image. It's not the place. It's not the future. Mulray, left of centre, edgy. We want something people are going to talk about. And so away we went, Triple Your Music, Doug Mulray. And uh, as soon as it was, it was successful, Rod Fodden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the appointment of Triple M, the introduction of the Triple Your Music concept, seeing your ratings go north, then be shown the door. Rather interesting set of events. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you know, as I said, I'd, I'd made my enemies in that place 12 months earlier. It was always going to be on. And I'd, again... I didn't care. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I could do it. It was just a case of, oh, well, I'll just take it. I walked away. In fact, I walked away from broadcasting that day. Yes, a six-year hiatus, in fact, taking up the position of Managing Director of EMI Australia. So, Barry, what skills in radio management do you think assisted you at working at EMI? (laughs) Uh, Very few, actually. Uh, You know, obviously, uh, I, I had a good ear for a hit song. But that's where it went. That's that was the end of that. This was this was a fantastic experience. It was all about a grounding in business, you know, an international business. I was negotiating with Stevie Wonder's lawyer. Not six months later, you know, I was I was in the, the in the offices of the biggest lawyers in the world. I laugh when I see, you know, uh, Donald Trump talking about John Eastman. And guess who I dealt with back in the day? It was. Uh, a really interesting experience to see it from the other side, to see what life was like and to be part of young writers and young artists trying to break into, into, into radio, knowing the other side as I did. I knew how hard it was and, 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 it, and it proved to be true. It's, you know, radio is an impenetrable wall when you sit on the outside of it from a music perspective. Triple J's extension to Adelaide is the ABC's latest step in its plan to have the station broadcasting in all capital cities by the end of the year. Now, one of your biggest challenges, no doubt, was overseeing the Triple J Network's expansion as their general manager. So why back to radio and why a non-commercial network? Um, yeah, it was interesting. I, I can't re- We got to the end of the 80s and there'd been a merger which had fundamentally was a takeover in the, at, at EMI with a company out of America, the SBK. And uh, I'd heard on the grapevine that uh, my opposition at Sony was going to take over the newly merged company. And, uh, you know, I had, I had quite a discussion with the people in America and they wanted me to go to Los Angeles or go to London. 
and he offered me a couple of jobs. I didn't like them. And I came back and thought about what am I going to do. And around about the same time, Triple J was looking to go to a national network and a headhunter in North Sydney contacted me. And I went to a series of uh, interviews with Malcolm Long, then director of radio, and Peter Loxton. And uh, we had this fantastic conversation about where radio could be. It was one of the most enlightening conversations you'd ever wish to have about broadcasting. And we saw absolutely eye to eye what needed to be done. You know, I, I knew a lot about the double J, triple J experience anyway, uh, just from being out on the outside and watching it and knowing, and knowing people inside it. So I took on the job. Uh, and boy, oh boy, was that fun. Was that, oh my God. Yes. I always say to people, when was the last day or the first day you ever went to work and the very first day of your job, you were standing in the foyer reception of the office and you said to the receptionist, where is everybody? And the receptionist, whose name was Stavrula, said to me, Barry, I can't tell you. Just then there was an almighty crash of glass in Forbes Street in the front door of Triple J, and hundreds of protesters crashed into the building screaming, fuck the radio police. And I realised that I was the radio police. <laughs> My first day at Triple J, and it went on from there. It took me, it took me 18 months to turn, the, to turn the Titanic around. So what do you think was more demanding and taxing on you, dealing with the Catholic Church and all those egos at 2SM, or the unrelenting protests of the hardcore Triple J supporters and staff? Uh, the Catholic Church was easy. You know, the, the bottom line was in the end, uh, being the agnostic that I am, I made the money, and in the end, that's what drove them. You know, it's it, it's a <laughs> there's nothing to do with religion. Trust me, it's all about the dollar. Uh, the Triple J experience was hard. I mean, it was hard. You know, I I I I brought on and the and the ABC backed me four national strikes on what I did in the Triple J inside uh, and the changes that I made and how I went about it. But they never 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 backed down. Never backed down for a moment in backing me to get done what we needed to get done. Uh, David Hill, the, the then MD, said to me uh, early in the piece, he said, "I like what you do." Just keep doing it. That was, uh, you, know, you don't get much more support than that. Now, Barry, you've had some battles and won some wars, but which was the most satisfying period for you professionally? Uh, probably, probably, uh, probably the regionalisation. You know, I can look back on 2SM and say that was fantastic, you know, and it was. But turning Triple J from you know, 220,000 audience in Sydney to a national beast where, you know, the target was 3 million listeners and getting it into regional Australia. Uh, and that took a bit of doing. I, I was very lucky. I had great support from uh, John Brown, who was the Minister for Sport and Tourism, and the leather-jacketed politician Pete Steedman through my role in Inside Oz Music, where we, we basically got this done at the time when the ABC was on the nose with uh, with the Labor Party. And uh, Keating got up in 93 and said, we're going to regionalise Triple J and here's $20 million to build the transmitters. Going out into regional Australia and doing the launch, I remember sitting in a bar in a, in a small I mean, country town. Obviously, this people sitting in the bar knew who I was. 
because it was a function to be on it a whole lot. And I said to them, what's having Triple J hear me? And they said, it's really simple. It's the way out. Anything ever resonated with me was taking me right back to my disadvantaged youth of the way out. And I, you know, that day to me just said everything about what media can be and what it can do. So that's probably the thing I look back on with the greatest pride. I mean, I did lots of great things. I, I've had some fantastic jobs. Uh, you know, the Channel V experience, going, going from, from radio to television, Channel V was just unbelievable what we got to do. But uh, I always look back at that moment and then, because I'd said to the, I'd said to the management, the ABC, uh, on the night before uh, Keating's speech, I said, there's going to be something in this for us. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And sure as hell, the next morning, it was like, how did you know? I knew because we'd done the work. Okay, Barry, a couple of quick random questions. Whether you believe or not that video killed the radio star, a video game actually killed off a budding radio star's career. What happened there? <laughs> Space Invaders. Uh, Alan Steele. <laughs> you have done your homework, haven't you? Um, in the 2SM days, we had two-way radio direct to the studio in the cars. So in my car was a VHF radio that I could talk to the jocks on air. And uh, I just happened to be coming home at 2 a.m. in the morning uh, or 3 a.m. in the morning from some club somewhere after seeing some band play. And I was hearing the backup tape. <laughs> We'd gone from silence to backup tape. And that's, you know, car one's a studio. <laughs> no answer. So uh, we found out that the wonderful Alan Steele had just cut short his career by being addicted to space invaders in the jocks room rather than being on the air. And that's what happened. It was tough, but, you know, it was, that's, that was life. You had a job, you did it. Okay, dragging an ice cube from the South Pole, discovering a Japanese submarine on the harbour floor, or having a jumbo go under the harbour bridge. Which was your favourite prank? Oh, definitely the jumbo. Yes, it, it came out of a moment of silliness, you know, as you well know, uh, 2SM was famous for what it did around the bridge in in Rocktober. And we were sitting there in a meeting and we were discussing what we were going to do for Rocktober this year and everybody was scratching their heads. And uh, I think, you know, we were, it was just, we were, we were at the point of just like, what? And someone said, I think it was Ronnie Sparks, said, oh, we'll just fly planes over. And I went, no, we'll put a jumbo on there. And because uh, I'd, I'd had a big commitment to, to Macca. You know, one of the things that I set as a, as a goal for the station was to get Macca to number one. O'Callaghan had beat his ass for seven years, basically. I wanted a number one. He needed, we, we created a lot of stunts jointly and, uh, and individually there. and Jumbo was just one of them you know, at eight o'clock in the morning uh, on that wonderful on that wonderful day when Ian McRae uh, yeah, well I have this chat Steve Lehman comes on the radio at eight o'clock and says I've never in my life seen anything like it a dirty great Jumbo going under the harbour bridge an elephant on a barge there were 20,000 people by the side of the harbour that day. It was national news. Every newspaper, every television station 
the promotion cost eleven hundred dollars. It was just it was just something else, and it just it it came out of just a moment of absolute I won't say frustration, but certainly it was close because we were just getting stumped with what to do. The submarine got us into all the trouble in the world. That was Harvey Shaw, who used to be at Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. He came to me with that idea. The Japanese embassy were up in arms. Going to a, a grave of our soldiers, our, our, our mariners, the iceberg with Dick Smith. <laughs> that was it. Was just part of a fun, you know. We just we just wanted to have as much fun and give the audience as much to enjoy as possible. You know, we went to metric time one morning. You, you can imagine <laughs> the outrage in one part of the community and the fun in the other, and they realised we'd just taken the piss. It was it was great days. Now, Barry, I heard a very good interview with Graham Kennedy and the then Prince Charles back in 1977, with the King asking some excellent probing questions. Did you ever hear that interview yourself? Uh, I didn't have to hear the interview. I wrote the questions with David White. In uh, 1977, David White and I were given a brief by the Queen's Silver Jubilee Committee to fly around the world and record an interview with the top 30 British rock acts. Uh, for the Silver Jubilee, and we would finish off that interview, uh, that interview series with an interview with Prince Charles. So we kept our side of the bargain, uh, and we had a great deal of fun doing it. But uh, at the end of it, it's Harry M. The late Harry M. Miller was uh, the man that was running all this at the time, and he and I had a big fight in the Dorchester in Sydney, in Bris- in London, and Harry said uh, these questions are not good enough. I'm not going to submit them to the palace. Now, I knew that was absolute rubbish because, you know, we'd done our homework. We knew we, that's what we did for a living. And uh, so the interview never happened. Of course, we got back to Australia. And who did the interview? You know, Graham. So and I've never had to listen to it. Didn't really care. But that's how life went. That was just... The twists and turns of the wonderful life, wonderful world of radio. Finally, Barry, with podcasting, the likes of Spotify, and a generation of young people who want to choose rather than being told, where do you see the future of radio? Well, I think it it remains the same. Uh, it's just got to find the ways to engage. It, it doesn't matter who you are in the end. You've got to find the ways to engage. If you don't, formats alone won't do it. You know, you want you need people that people will relate to. You need fun. You need entertainment. You need just that that hook. It's nothing. Nothing ever changes in life. Yes, choice is wonderful, but in the end, what you're looking for is that exact same thing. You want to engage with something. So radio is exactly the same. Uh, I just, I you know, my fear has always been that formats have overtaken. You know, formats have become a lame excuse for broadcasting. Uh, rather than entertainment. I used to spend all day on the beach just fishing, watching the seagulls pinch my bait. Then along came this guy who said, I like your attitude. I like the voice and the face is okay too. What's your name? John Young. Nah, needs a poll. JPY, I'll make you a star. A rotten swine did.
Yes, indeed. What did we do before October? Hey, Barry, we've got 12 questions we ask all our guests, starting off with where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was on the air, 20 to 4, December 8th, Triple M. I announced it. Horrible. Worst, one of the worst days of my life. Like, I never forgot. I went back to, I went back to the offices. I shared an office because uh, I, I was a consultant to uh, music companies at that point in time. And Peter Dawkins, famous record producer, and I just sat in the office and cried for about three hours. We were just distraught because, you know, he, he was the person that changed my life. When I heard that, when I heard Sons and Pepper and all those songs, all those albums, that was just another world. Changed, changed the world. The last concert ticket you paid for? Can't remember, but I always paid. I didn't like, I didn't, never wanted to be beholden to anybody. I always paid for my concert tickets. Uh, that was just me. I would go and see young bands mm. uh, where, where my name was on the door, but that was business. That was about getting a promotion for them. But to go and see, Madonna or the Rolling Stones or Bruce Springsteen, I played. Barry, is there any particular act that you regret never seeing? No, no. I've, uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd have to really start disappearing back into the into the late sixties <laughs> to see a Jimi Hendrix or a, <laughs> or a Cream or somebody like that. But you know, certainly all of my era, I was lucky enough to see them. That one word you had the most trouble pronouncing on air. Oh, my very first job. I've never forgotten it. You try to say rural radio. <laughs> 2QN, call sign, rural radio. I used to go to John, the manager, you're kidding me. <laughs> Can we say something else, please? You weren't alone with that one, Barry. Hey, listen, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Oh, there was a couple. One I was not involved in, but I was directly responsible for was the Triple J. When uh, a live cross to Hobart, when John Hewson was doing the hustings for the 1993 election, uh, I think it was Francine Kelly, but I can't remember now, uh, had a live mic when Rogerson Spillane crossed to her and she referred to the Prime Minister as a <laughs> And I had to apologise to the leader of the Liberal Party and to the party. Uh, and I honestly thought that day I was gone because that's just how it is. But we got through that. Fortunately, they didn't get elected. <laughs> or I was definitely gone. Skyhooks or Sherbets? Oh, I don't care. Love them both. No, no, you, you'll never get me in a conversation about Rolling Stones or Beatles, Skyhooks or Sherbet. Whatever, don't care. I love music. Well, you've just killed my next question of Rolling Stones or the Beatles. <laughs> love them both. Most treasured piece of memorabilia from your early radio days? Uh, gee, probably the most treasured piece. In fact, uh, the very person who created them uh, was, has been just staying with me for the last few days. It was Parsons. I've got the original three drumsticks that formed the pitch for the Triple J logo. So that's probably my radio piece of memorabilia. I don't, I don't keep much, actually. I'm not, I'm not very much of a ballot bird in that regard. The other thing that I treasure is my Ted Albert Award for services to the music and the industry and being the only broadcaster that's ever received that. I, you know, that's, that, that's something I treasure. Now, we may have already covered this one, but the biggest news story that broke while you were on air. No, I definitely... Uh, 
definitely uh, Lennon. I think I can't think of anything else that was more impactful. I mean, there were many stories. But, I mean, my first week at 2SM was the Granville train disaster, second day. Barry, is there a moment over all your years that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? Oh, yeah. Well, I wasn't on the air, but again, I was there. I was in the studio. I've got the photos to prove it. Muhammad Ali, as his, his famous line was, you know, we don't serve Negroes in here. He said, that's all right. I don't eat them. Yeah, classic Ali. Best words of advice from a program manager, Barry? But uh, I, I struggle with that one. There's probably someone said to me somewhere along the way, be yourself. Don't be anybody else. Be yourself. And I've, I've always said it to other people, you know. And finally, Barry, are there two albums that you would consider the soundtrack of your teenage years? Oh, yeah. Well, Sergeant Peppers, obviously. And uh, The Doors, Soft Parade. I could, I could go to the LA woman. I could get, you know, there's, there's a few there, but that, that kind of, there, there was just something about that band that, that just always just captured me. Well, Barry, we've covered so much in the past 45 minutes and there's still so much more that we could have explored. Your career has definitely been diverse, challenging and, of course, successful. That's my, 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 my favourite line, she can't hit a moving target. Thanks again for your time today and for recalling all those great memories. All right, good luck with your podcast. Barry Chapman on Pilots of the Airwaves.